Welcome back to the Corporate Escapee Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today's guest is Brooke Sellis. Brooke is a leader in the marketing space and specifically in the social media marketing. LinkedIn even named Brooke as one of the top 10 rising stars in marketing to follow. She's also the founder of B-Squared Media, a social media marketing and care company that provides done-for-you services for brands of all sizes. Brooke is also a speaker, adjunct professor, and now a published author. She just released her first book, Conversations That Connect. Welcome to the show, Brooke. And, and did I miss anything? <laughs> no, that was a lot. That was a lot crammed into a few seconds. You did quite well. Gold star for you. I <laughs> uh, appreciate that. It did take a little bit of editing, but I got, but I got it there. And and one, congratulations on the book. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, wasn't sure what I was getting into. I'm like, what can I possibly learn about you know social media and, and care? But you know, as I showed you before, my my book with all my sticky notes meant you know, that's interesting. There's things to follow up with in this. So, so I like I said, I, I really appreciated it. I think um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast to, to talk about it. But, but first of all, congrats on the book. Thank you. And seeing your notes, oh my gosh, that makes my heart pitter patter. I think probably any author, hopefully they're good notes. But I mean, when you see those posty notes and all those, you know scribbles. It just makes me feel good, right? I'm So I'm, thank you. I'm so glad you read it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And thank you for having me today. You know, another reason I like the hard copy is I still like to make notes, especially in a book that I'm looking to learn something from versus just enjoying it. So I know you can annotate on Kindles and those types of things, but I don't know. For me, it just helps reinforce the when I write it down. <laughs> no, I'm the same. I, I like a, a book in my hands. I, I like the smell of the pages. I like to take notes. I was actually told that I'd probably sell more Kindle versions than print copies, and that's not true at all. I've sold may, like less than 10% digital versions of the book and mostly print copies. So I still think there's a lot of people who appreciate print. Yeah. And I do want to get into the book here in a little bit. Um, and also, one, I think I told you offline, appreciate the fact that the visual examples that you have in there, not enough authors do that. That was, was really helpful. So, but we will, I promise we'll get back into to the book and how that applies to, to our audience. But first, um, I'm always fascinated when folks start a company. And let's go back to when you started B Squared and, and why did you start it? What was missing in the market that, you know, kind of compelled you to, to jump in? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I was working actually for a training company down in Texas, and I was helping uh, this business owner build social media revenue streams. And my viewpoint after doing my thesis work was always that, you know, social media wasn't a Monday through Friday nine to five job, which I talk about in the book. So I had convinced her that we needed to have seven day a week services for our clients. And essentially, I got to test the model. For a couple of years um, with what I wanted to do with my own company, I was very transparent with her. I told her from the beginning, like when she said, what's your ultimate goal? I said to own my own business. But I got to kind of beta test it on her dime. <laughs> but she made she's still making money off of her social media revenue services. So once I figured out that it worked and uh, we kind of had, you know, some mismatches between that business owner and myself about how it should be done and 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 the services themselves and how many people should be on an account and things like that. I kind of started getting that feeling like, well, this is my dream. I know it works. And then I know, I think, if I do it the way I really want to do it, it could be huge. 
And so the thought was there, but I was scared to make the leap. You know, I think a lot of people are in this boat. They're moonlighting or maybe they are testing the, you know, market with their current job. Um, But my dad actually came to me and said, I got you a meeting with our chief marketing officer. He worked at a fintech company at the time. And he said, and this is where it ends. I got you the the interview. You go in, you make the pitch. I'm I'm done. I'm out of this. My only um, stipulation is that if you win this job, if you win this pitch, you cannot do it through this company. You need to do it on your own. And so I went in. I did the pitch. I won the pitch <laughs> and then kind of scrambled to create B-squared Media because I won the pitch and I really – wasn't expecting to win the pitch, but that's really how it all happened. It was kind of, you know, I knew it was working, but I didn't have the inner strength to make that leap. I needed kind of a nudge. So my dad kind of pushed me off the cliff, (laughs) but I think he knew that there was a net waiting for me. Yeah, no, and it's such a a good point. I love, that's why I love these interviews because I have no idea where where they're going. But I think, you know, one of the things, the themes that I keep seeing is having that support group, right? Whether or whoever it is, you can't do this alone. And sometimes it just takes that affirmation or reinforcement that says, yes, you have the skills, you can do this, right? It's going to be okay, right? What's the worst that's going to happen type of thing, so. Yeah, and I have to give credit too to my my boyfriend, now husband. At the time though, he was my my boyfriend. And he said, you know, we were living together and he said, don't worry about, you know, making this leap once I made the leap, I'll cover our bills until you can get on your feet. So, you know, I definitely am self-made. Nobody gave me a million dollars and told me to start a business, but I did have that support. Somebody paid my bills for six months while I got on my feet. I did sell my car and I used that as, as, you know, in in a cash infusion into the business. But I mean, it, it takes a village, like you're saying. It wasn't just me it was a lot of people kind of having my back and saying that they would support me until I could prove the concept and get on my feet. That's awesome. That was, and this was the early days. I mean, it's hard to believe that 2012 was the early days of social media, <laughs> but it really kind of was. It so, was. You know, one of the things when I started this transition to, to focus more on the, the corporate, you know, the, the escapees that are now solo or small business is, you know, the the three apps, right? So the freedom, flexibility, and financial independence. And just curious, when you were making that leap, you probably had one vision of what that looked like. And just curious how that's evolved over time. And have you found your, your right balance yet? Or are you still searching for it? <laughs> I think it's, you know, for me personally, as an entrepreneur, it's a, it's a daily balancing act, right? And the goalpost is always changing. You know, in the very beginning, it was about that freedom. I wanted the freedom to build the services and and implement the services the way I saw in my heart that they were going to work. And I now know that that was the right thing to do. But after that, I think flexibility comes into play a lot of times. Um, And sometimes it is about financial freedom too, right? Breaking through that glass ceiling. You know, I know as a female that – in let's just say if I had a, a regular marketing job in corporate, I would I've already, you know, gone way far past where I would have been able to go in corporate. So I would have been spinning my wheels for probably the same um the same pay year after year, or I would have hit a glass ceiling. You know, I've been able to move past that both in title and the things that I do and obviously in salary. So I, I think all three of them matter. 
it just depends on the day. <laughs> like you can right. ask me tomorrow and I'll tell you it's flexibility because I'm a, I'm a horse mom and I, so I like to ride in the mornings. That's how I like to start my day. Well, that means I don't start my day sometimes till 10, 11 a.m. And that's a huge piece for me to be able to go do that thing and then start my day a little bit later than most people. Yeah. And I think that's what some people underappreciate how much more flexible. I mean, you're still going to work. The hours are going to be there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I still work over 40 hours a week. Um, But, you know, I get to decide, am I going to ride this morning or am I going to forego the ride? To You know, it's my choice. Nobody's telling me what to do. Right. Try doing that in the corporate world and they're going to tell you, you're not riding for four hours or you're not spending day. But I wouldn't anyway. be able to ride it except for on the weekends. And you know, the weekends is when everyone else rides. I actually try yeah. not to ride on the weekend because it's less busy. I want quiet time. Um, so, it, I mean, it, it truly is all th- three of those things. They just kind of slot in and out of like where they sit in first, second, and third place. I promise. Last, last question on this is when you were starting the company – because one thing I, I talk a lot about when, when folks is, is is to have a plan and it's okay if that plan changes, but you got to have a plan to start. So was your plan originally to build a, a big company or was it to be, you know, lightweight, but flexible and deliver services? Did you, how far beyond that pitch did you actually see where this company was, where you wanted that company to go? At that time, I didn't go very far. I can, I, you know, I'm very transparent. I'm an open book. So I can tell you for the first two years, I was a solopreneur and I was doing all the work. Um, so I was, you know, running the business, figuring out how the business was going to work. So op sales, marketing, but also delivering the services to the clients for the first, you know, two to three years. So there really was no plan. But as we, I started to grow and as I started to realize like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to hire someone. That's when the when the planning kicked into gear because I realized that, you know, I had to transfer all of this knowledge that was sitting in my brain and put it down into, you know, processes that were repeatable, transferable, measurable, all these things to be able to pass the brain on to someone else. And I think that's a great piece of advice for anyone listening, you know, from the beginning or even now, whether you're 10 years in or, you know, 10 days in document everything. It will make your life so much easier because that's one of the hardest struggles I had as an early business owner was documenting those processes. And if I would have just done it from the beginning, it would have made my life so much easier. (laughs) No, that's what lessons learned uh, approach. And, you know, it's it's interesting too, because my journey through, because I left management consulting four years ago, was it four years? Wow. But yeah, for the first two years, I was doing everything, right? It was the, the sales, the delivery, and I just realized it was it was good, but it was capped. I can only do so much right. and wasn't necessarily loving the work that I was doing. So started that pivot into to what I'm working on now, which is, which again, it's good. It's, it doesn't have to, once you leave corporate, you don't have to do the same thing forever. You can start to, I always encourage people, stick with what you're good at, play to your strengths get the momentum going, and then figure out the paths are going to open up for you as you go. All right. So let, let's now tap in. One, thanks for sharing your story on that. But two, now your expertise on social, because I guarantee you, unless we some of our listeners are actually in that social media space, uh, we understand social. But like I said, until I read your book and like, aha, that makes, I mean, it makes a lot of sense the, the way you laid it out. But I, I think, you know, the example is used the way we do it 
incorrectly mm. are there for a reason. <laughs> so why did you write the book? Is it just something that you've always wanted to do or reach more people? And then you know, let's get into how, as a small business owner, we should be thinking about social media. You know, backtracking a little bit, the reason why we decided to write the book or I decided to write the book was because my customers kept asking for the service that didn't exist, right? So we would help them with their done-for-you social media management, which means it was very content-heavy, right? We were relying on content to spread awareness, get the message out, which is what 99.99% of brands on social are still doing today. But what I started hearing from clients was, and this was back in 2018, we're getting a lot of people asking us questions about our products or our services, whether it's you know pre-purchase. So they're kind of in that research consideration phase, like asking like, hey, is your printer Alexa compatible, right? Pre-purchase. But also they were getting a lot of support questions from customers who had purchased from them, but were asking for, you know, hey, my ink isn't printing, but it, but I know the ink is new, right? Those kind of support questions. And they were coming in through social channels, not the traditional channels of telephone, call center, email, you know, chat bot, website bot. Um and they kept saying, "Can you can you just do that? Like we we handle we can handle the content, or we've got a you know a, an agency who does our creative. Can you just do this? What we're now calling customer care part of it." And I would always say, "Well, let me noodle on that, you know." But once I heard it a few times and from a few different clients, I really started to go, "Okay, there's a there there. I need to listen. I need to sit down and dig in." And that's exactly what we did. So. We kind of looked at it for a year in 2017, and then in 2018, we actually started running this a beta service program with one of our bigger clients, and it was beautiful, <laughs> and there was definitely something there. And then essentially in 2020, we released, finally released the actual service, you know, publicly, and were able to close um, several more clients for just for social media customer care, which means all we're doing is getting outsourced for these companies to provide customer care, whether it's that pre-purchase, like closing the deal, bringing in new customers, or that support post-purchase. It's, it's a great lesson for, for folks that are starting to build companies and think about where I'm adding resources. And conventional wisdom says, well, I need a marketing person. I need a salesperson. I need an onboarding person. I need customer service. But are you seeing companies starting to adopt this? Yes. So we were really early to market in 2018. And and honestly, we're still early to market in 2022. But during the pandemic, when all these people kind of rushed to go online, even the people who were hesitant to use social media before to research or to ask for support questions kind of went there because that's the only place we could go during COVID, right? So Yes, we're, we were early to market, but now I think brands are starting to realize like, oh my gosh, these conversations are happening. And I think one of the biggest aha moments for, for at least our clients is how much of that chatter on social media is acquisition, meaning revenue, right? So if we're able to say to Brett, who comes through and asks about that printer being Alexa compatible – Hey, Brett, yes, it's, it is. Here's a video on how that works. And if you buy within the next 48 hours, here's a coupon for free shipping or 10% off or whatever it is, and Brett purchases, we can put acquisition 
dollars, right? Revenue through acquisition to organic social media, which leadership is floored about because most C-suite positions still don't understand the value of organic social media. But if we can start to tie return on investment to organic social media, they're definitely sitting up in their chairs and going, wait, 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 show me that again. You made how much money last month through doing this, you know, and that's what's needed. So it's a slow process or there's a lot of education that's needed, part of why I wrote the book. But I think brands are starting to realize the importance of social media as an acquisition channel, not just a support channel or a broadcast channel. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's fascinating. And I do think we're in, still in the early stages. Again, I still get into LinkedIn fights about sales and marketing alignment. <laughs> and if you're even talking about that, you're, you're in big trouble because <laughs> yeah. it's passed by. But the one thing I do encourage everybody, it, I mean, content is no longer optional. And part of what I liked about your book was the content for content stake is there. It's content for a conversation and paraphrasing a little bit, but you know, I really like that idea and it just, it just starts to tie into the bigger picture. And so I'm thinking, well, if I'm only a solo business owner, but the fact is a solo business owner, you can build a million dollar business with one person with some freelancers. And so social is going to be a big part of that. And that's your content. And but if I'm a, a new business owner and I'm starting, if I'm going to create content anyway, kind of what's, what's your recommendation of how to put a plan around, I guess, right? If you're going to create the content, here's, here's what I would do. Right? Well, I talk about this extensively in the book, but um, I did my undergraduate thesis on social media and how my, my ultimate question for the thesis was, can we form relationships as consumers with brands the way we do in real life, people to people, right? Instead of brand or business to people. Um, and I use the social penetration theory, terrible name, brilliant concept, to figure out, you know, can we do this? Because essentially the SPT, we'll call it the SP- SPT. Essentially the SPT says, you know, the way Brett and I form a relationship is through self-disclosure, right? And there's four levels of self-disclosure. There's cliches, facts, opinions, and feelings. And a lot of people base things on cliches and facts. If you look at social media content from the majority of brands, it's based in cliches and facts. Here's what's not great about cliches and facts. We don't build relationships with cliches and facts. We don't build trust and we don't build loyalty. Where those things start to happen is with opinions and feelings. So what I say in the book is essentially I teach in the book is how to start building content asking for and giving opinions and feelings as the brand. Because ultimately, communities isn't, you know, based in your content. You know, a lot of brands now are trying to build a community. It's based in the conversation. We're not starved for content. There's content today about the thing you want to write about. There's 4,600 other articles out there. We're not starved for content. We're starved for a connection. So if your content can become conversational. You can start to use it to collect voice of the customer data. They're going to give you those opinions and feelings, maybe on something trivial, but then as you grow that relationship, you can start to ask questions about the brand, your products, your services, your competitors, your industry, and take that information in-house and make way better marketing decisions, right? Plus, you're going to get a ton of great content. Plus, all of the algorithms have a variable within them for social media that looks at 
what they call social proof, meaning those engagement levels. Likes don't cut it. You know, comments and shares are really where you get a lot of those like algorithm points. If you're having conversations, those are really easy to get. One of the areas I still struggle with is the opinion piece of this, even though it's like, do as I say, not as I do, right? Because you should have a point of view and it's okay if it's a niche down market and, and pick that niche, right? Because you can always expand. And I think that's one of the hardest areas because we don't, we want to do everything for everybody. And I'm, I'm talking about brands of, yes. I've got three customers or I've got a, three million. We can do this type of an approach. You know, the, the brand and the owner, the CEO, they can't be separate anymore, right? I mean, people want to buy from, you know, like the authentic brands or the, the the transparent, not just transparent to be transparent, but, you know, I had Marty Sanchez on the podcast. I should have to bring him back on because he was talking about the rise of the inbound CEO and brands of any size or leaders are who consumers B2B, B2C are, are looking at as part of that. So it's really hard to separate. And I don't think you want to separate the two, but as a small business, it's really almost impossible. So you're going to have to believe in what you're selling and why you're selling it and be able to, to tell those stories. I think the biggest thing is knowing and voicing your brand core values, right? What do we stand for? You have to stand for something or you'll fall for anything, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and then figuring out how through that conversational content, aligning with people who are similar to you because that's what we're looking for right now, right? The world is on fire. We are disjointed. We're unhappy. We are constantly seeking out connection. And when I say connection, I mean finding individuals who are like us, like-minded individuals so stand on your values, share those values, ask for their values back, and you'll start to align, right, with, with people's personal values and the brand core values. Patagonia is a great example of this, right? I, I talk about them in the book. They, they're an apparel brand. It's outdoor apparel. It's for people who bike and hike and are very outdoorsy. And ultimately, Patagonia's brand core value is climate change, supporting climate change, like doing something to, you know, be better for the environment. Their audience, even through just the type of clothes that they make, are going to be aligned with that core value. They're probably going to trust Patagonia more because they're constantly sharing that core value. They put out a post, you know, almost a year ago now that, that said, hey, we're going to stop advertising on Facebook because Facebook doesn't um, help with with supporting climate change. So it's a mismatch for our brand values. People loved it. You know, you saw late, I'm sure you saw the news a couple of months ago, or it might have even been a month ago, when the the CEO, you know, left. Right. And, and basically is giving all of the money from the company that he would get to environmental change. So, I mean, they really stand behind their core values. And yes, you're going to have some dissolution, you know, right? This is regular in relationships. Not everybody's going to be your cup of tea. That's okay. We need to stop trying to market to everybody, as you were saying, Brett, because it doesn't work. You can't date everyone. What you need to focus on is your buying audience. And the buying audience comes forward when you start to align your brand core values with those of your audience, right? And you can only really do that through sharing your opinions and feelings about your brand core values and asking for theirs in return. And then not being upset if there's dissolution or people walk away from the brand because they weren't going to buy from you or remain loyal anyway. Right. 
Right, right. Or be one of those advocates, right, as, as you talk about, too. And, you know, it's interesting. So the, the journey with, with my business kind of is following this, right? So I'm like, when I started, I'm like, ah, I can help all businesses between zero and 10, right? The framework will work, it'll grow. But kind of what I found is, you know, it, it works for everybody, but it works for nobody, because I really wasn't talking to anybody specific. And, you know, as I slowly iterated and moved into where I'm now passionate about it is because I did leave corporate America. I had a couple of, you know, starts and stops where I ended up going back because, you know, it's hard to argue with the benefits sometimes. <laughs> yes. that. But, you know, I've really embraced in the last less probably six months, right? Other folks that are there who are stuck or have left and are fearful that they're going to have to go back. So I'm, that's all I'm talking about these days is that, and maybe the corporate escapee isn't the best name for it, but it's those are the folks that I want to talk to. Hey, you've got 15 years of experience. Somebody's paying you to do a job. You have a skill set that's transferable that you can start your own your own business. So like I said, it's, it's taken me a while. And maybe if I would have read your book <laughs> two years ago, I would have got there a little bit quicker. But um, but no, I think you're right. It's just easier because now I don't have to say things for different audiences in essence, but it just, Hey, this is who I want to help. And if you're not in that boat, you know, feel free to listen <laughs> and come along. You'll learn. But it, these are the folks that, that I really want to talk to now. Yeah. I think it's scary, right? I think a yeah. lot of feedback that I've gotten about the book is like, well, what you're saying is scary. It's scary because in any relationship, again, business to consumer or people to people, to get to that like deep relationship, loyalty, trust, all those things we want as a person or as a brand, a company owner, you have to be vulnerable, right? You can't get to intimacy, whether you're trying to be close to your, again, customers or someone else in your life personally without being vulnerable. So yes, that feels scary. But if you do it in an, a truly authentic way, again, look at look at Patagonia. There's a million brands out there who do it in such a lovely way. They're not being risky. It's not scary, right? They're just truly being their authentic selves, not trying to be something they're not, but actually like, hey, we're not going to market on Facebook. We don't like Facebook. And if you love Facebook, maybe we're not the brand for you and being okay with that. That's truly authentic and it works very well. Follow up maybe to that is because in the book you talk about the the mix or the blend of SPT and you, you kind of talked about it now. So maybe is yeah, I'm thinking about building my content strategy. What's I know there's no one right answer, but how how would you encourage folks to think about that from that mix? For me, and I get I get this is scary, so it doesn't mean you have to embrace this. But our best practice is only ten percent of your content should be cliches. 10% or less, right? And then we can bump up a tiny bit for facts. So we can say 30% of our content is allowed to be factual. And here's the thing about the social penetration theory. It says that facts have to be otherwise unknown for them to be a fact. So if you're repeating your features over and over again, you've now gone cliche, right? You've moved into cliche territory. I would argue with you that yes, features would be factual content. And it is important. But if you start to talk about benefits versus features, right? So not what not not the feature, but what the feature does to solve someone's pain point, then you're starting to get into more like opinions and feelings type content, right? And so if if 10% are facts and we're saying um 30%, I'm sorry, 10% are cliches and we're saying 30, 20, 30% of facts, the rest of your content needs to be 
opinions and feelings based. So like point of view, your thoughts on this or those and but also listening opinions. And it could be uh, again, it doesn't have to be risky. We're we're coming up here in the US on Halloween, right? Halloween's yeah. next week. One of the questions I could ask on my page as a social media marketing company is we've reduced the budget. Name another, you know, four or five word horror story, four or five word marketing or social media horror story. People are going to respond and respond with their horror stories. But what what I'm doing is I'm getting that voice of customer data. I'm getting into their psyche and I know what their biggest fears are, what their biggest pain points are. Couldn't I though then go and create content around those fears and tell them what the solutions are to those fears pertaining to my services? Absolutely, right? So you're just working a lot smarter and a lot less harder if you take this approach with your content. That makes a perfect transition into my question around social listening, right? Oh my God, I love social listening because it's taking your your voice of customer data from reactive to proactive, right? We're not just now looking at conversations that are coming to us, which is reactive. We're going out into the interwebs and we're using a tool to listen to keywords that everybody's talking about, right? So it's proactive versus reactive. And Brett, I hear companies tell me all the time, well, nobody's talking about us because we're small. And I'm like, okay, number one, we got to fix that. But number two, are they talking about your industry? Are they talking about your competitors? Yes. And couldn't you go listen in on keywords with your competitors, your top competitors' conversations? And again, see where that negative conversation is happening, that negative sentiment. And then, okay, I'll give an example because this might be easier to understand. Let's say you're a, a running shoe brand. And you're small, you're new, you're a startup. Not that many people are talking about you yet. But you go and you look at your top competitor through social listening and all their conversations and you look at the negative conversations. And what you find over and over and over again is that your top competitor's customers are really upset because after about the third run, their shoelaces break. Couldn't you create a campaign around your shoelaces lasting at least 100 runs or more? to steal some of the competitor base and share a voice away from your competitor and get people talking about you, get people to buy from you? Absolutely. It's called tactical differentiation, and that's one of the things we use social listening for. So it's not just about people talking about you, right? Because a lot of us need work, (laughs) quite honestly, in that department. But they're always going to be talking about your industry or your competitors. And the information that you can garner from just listening is so valuable, right? Before you ever talk with your campaign, listen first. And your campaign is probably going to be 10 times better for it. Yeah, such good advice because I do think, and even I'm guilty of this, is, you know, everybody talks about keywords, which, again, are important. But if you're just looking at, you know, Google for keywords and articles, you're missing, I think, the bigger opportunity with what in social, what brands or customers or brands are actually talking about and being understanding what those challenges, especially if you're doing market research. I mean, I think Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. Google's so biased. What you are seeing on Google has so many different layers of variables and algorithms attached to it. It's so biased, Right. It's really giving you results based on you and your search history. It's it's not 
um, a real focus group, right? It's very, it's a very biased focus group. If you use social listening and you're looking at those keywords, you're looking at conversations. You know how much I love conversations. I'm sure we've made that clear by now, but you're looking at conversations from around the world, from all types of people on all different platforms, talking about this thing or this keyword phrase. It's like the world's biggest focus group. And it's pretty cheap, quite honestly, compared to what traditional focus groups cost. And it's very diverse. It's it's not as biased as like doing a Google search. And you're going to see conversation, which is invaluable. It's not just that keyword phrase. You're going to see the related keywords around that phrase, the related interest desires, the related pain points or pleasure points, right? It gives you a million and one different directions to go versus you know, more of a narrow path. Yeah, no, and it, it can be so powerful, right? Part of it is you get down some rabbit holes, but that's, that's okay. It's, I think those are better rabbit holes than to your point on Google. And one of the things I try to do when I do some of that is the incognito tab, but I'm still not convinced that it's not tailoring responses to yeah. my, my previous preferences. So, um, yeah, this is definitely an area. And again, if I would have read your book earlier, I would have known to spend <laughs> some more focused time. But but that's why I love having folks like you on the podcast to share right different ideas that and again, I'm not a big fan of hacks because I don't think there's shortcuts to it. Right. But there are right. different techniques. And if you follow conventional wisdom, by the time you get to social listening, it'll be, you know, step forty-four, where the fact is if you move this up in your in the early days, I mean, it's going to help accelerate what you're doing. So I think it's such a such a big piece of it. And again, I think people are intimidated by social media and it can be so broad, but um, it doesn't have to be. No, I mean <laughs> I get I get that too. Like that is a valid fear, right? It's very negative out there. I know we see it all the time every day, and it's only gotten more negative through the pandemic, the conversations and the complaints and the things people say. So I think people are scared to face that head on. But what I want to say there too, it's another, it's another I want you to flip the script on your thinking with that negativity because a lot of people, you know, we're as marketers especially, we're so used to like focusing on the positive for our stakeholders. But if everything's positive and everything's perfect, you don't have a job. There's no job security in that, right? right? If you can look at the negative and learn how to understand it to then go fix whatever that inherent problem is, you can actually – that's the catalyst for change for any business. Like if you know your shoelaces keep breaking and people are leaving the brand because of it, find a way to get better shoelaces, right? Yes, we could just be like, oh, we're looking into it. We could find a way to like quell the complaints on social. But if we go through and we fix our shoelaces and then we announce that on social, all of that positive conversation, everyone's watching too, right? is going to lead to more of those acquisition conversations versus, you know, churn conversations. As I was reading, I was thinking, you know, it's it's the old days. I, I, I may have shared with you. So my first, I guess my second corporate job was outsourced customer service, right? So for big brands, it was FTD, Sotheby's. So brands that actually cared, and this is a long time ago. So it was really just phone and some multi-channel. But, you know, every one of those customer service calls was one-on-one, -on -one, right? So there is no, nobody knows how, unless we published FAQs, 
where now with social, every it's um, one to many. It's a spectator sport. <laughs> everybody's watching your yes. complaint and your customer service call and joining and in. You know, one person right. goes to Twitter to complain about an airline and all of a sudden thousands of people are joining in. Everyone's watching. And some of those people may be in the consideration phase for that airline and some of those people may be customers of that airline. What you do and say in that moment can make or break your brand. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so true. And it, and again, I'm, I'm more of a half full optimist. So I'm like, it's it's such an opportunity because – you, you get one satisfied customer because of the way you helped them with whatever that issue was. Now, again, you're broadcasting to a thousand people or 50 or five. It doesn't matter if it's more than one. It's more people that you would have reached with that that before. And again, I still think it's way too much check the box. We answer. We've got a social media person, which is you know our intern out of college, which again, knows how to do it, but may not understand the power of the brand and those things. So I think you know, I would have thought by now that brands would be much, well, B2B, I know we, the default is D2C a lot of the times, but the B2B, there's a big opportunity because guess what? All those potential buyers of your software solution or your consulting services are paying attention to that as well. And heck, most of them probably don't even have a social media, dedicated social media resource. Yeah. So. I think that's why we're seeing a lot of the like, I'm sure you've seen it. If you've been on any social channel, you've seen a lot of the pushback around the social media manager role and social media, you know, frontline workers and and how they're undervalued, underpaid, all of these things. And I think the reason that is is because social media has become something entirely different than it was, you know, and it has become this multifaceted, multi-nuanced channel that the majority of people are now using um, versus like, say, email and phone for, again, acquisition or, or support. And I think, you know, businesses are still treating it like the 101 thing it was a million years ago. And it's really become this other thing entirely. And all of the expectations around these social media jobs has changed but the value isn't there. You know, they still don't see the value and they still aren't paying their people, you know, according to the value that they bring. So I think that's why we see that that negative chatter happening online is because brands still don't get it. And I don't know what's going to make them get it. We just got to have keep well, having these conversations. Yeah. I mean, I again, I've spent more of my time or most of my time in the, the B2B world. But, you know, before I left the consultant, I mean, I was – kind of screaming from the mountaintops. I'm like, did one digital change is, is coming, right? The way you, you if your legacy B2B company is more than 15 years old, it wasn't built to, to execute in, in today's digital world. And all of a sudden the, the value of those resources and the value of a, you know, how much we pay salespeople to do their job. But the fact is this person or people on the front line, both pre-sale, post-sale engaging with those social conversations is a hell of a lot more valuable than the person that's now somebody that's going to close. Now, I'm not minimizing the value of the sales rep, but you know the impact and the potential to your business is so much greater if you get the right resources and tools than the social space, right? I don't think it's it's lip service. I think it's real. I mean, no, I know it I'm is. preaching to the choir, but <laughs> it is real. That they're your social media person, they're your marketing person, they're your sales person, they're your you know call center support person, customer service, customer success, whatever you want to call it. They're all of those things, but you can't hire the intern. 
and have them be all of those things. You know, first you have to set yourself up to support all of those things with your social media frontline. Then you have to hire to to get the right person to to be able to do all of those things, right? Talking about a very multi-skilled, highly skilled individual. And then you have to pay them appropriately. I think if you're listening and you're new to social media or thinking about social media or maybe even a few years in and just trying to figure out like why it isn't working, I think my biggest point of advice is the platform is not the point, right? You do want to figure out where your audience is most available or more most active, right? Pick one or two channels to start. I think small is the new big with social media and Really think about like some of the things that we've talked about today, but the platform is not the point. Stop getting shiny object syndrome and jumping on to TikTok or Clubhouse or be real as soon as they launch. Give them time and you might need to, need to be there anyway. So, you know, understand where you need to be and then put your effort there. I don't think it's, it's you know, small as the new big. That's where I'll leave it. Yeah, no, and I love that. And you're right. The other area we didn't talk about, but I think probably people are more familiar is the 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 digital version of your customer journey. Well, almost all of their customer journeys now digital. And so maybe that's a good reason. One, I I would still highly encourage folks to go to pick up your book because I see, and if these are questions, you don't know where to start. It's, it's a great resource. Um, Like I said, you saw my, my page marks that I'm like, ah, a number of ahas just, just for my business. So um, any preferred channel for folks to pick up your book? Yeah, Amazon. You can just search Conversations That Connect or you can head to our website, bsquared.media. And I've got chapter one for free there in case you're a try it before you buy it type of person. Um, and then speaking of the digital customer journey, if you're so inclined, go sign up for our newsletter. It's quarterly. It's all about customer experience through social media. And I actually have a big exercise for people to implement on how to define and understand their their customers' digital customer journey. So if you go sign up for that newsletter soon, you'll get it when it comes out in November. Well, duly noted, I am signed up, so I'm looking forward to that. Because I, I and again, I know we were ending, but that is that's one that you know in the old days that the customer journey was very linear. Very maybe linear. it wasn't as linear as we thought it was, but mm-hmm. it was. But now, to your point, with social, the pouncing back and forth all over, you can't force them to buy, but you can be there when you want. So I think understanding where your customers are and spending time is is. Yeah. The two biggest changes, I think it's not, it's nonlinear. They can enter and exit wherever, right? Throughout the flywheel or the journey. Um, And I also think it's, it's self-led now. You know, we used to go into like Best Buy and say, hey, tell me about the newest, best TVs. But now we have all of this content online to research on our own and that's easier and quicker for us. So the journey is really self-led. You're not there to make the decision for them or tell them where to go. Like you were saying, like push them. You're there to, to guide and help. And, and you do that through conversation. So think yeah, conversation, no, right. not campaign. <laughs> awesome. And by the way, you're one of the few authors I've had on the podcast that does not use their middle initial in their name. <laughs> oh, I do. I do on the book. I just don't when I'm saying it out loud. It's Brooke Oh, B. yeah, you Ellis. did right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny that you said that because I do do that. I don't know what that is. It's like it's like something they encourage us to do. I don't know where that came from, quite honestly. I think it's publishers to make sure that you show up because of but if you're of the unique name, you're I probably think I'm the only Brooks Ellis. If you find another Brooks Ellis in your search, please let me know. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Brooke. Continue success and we look forward to having you back on the program. Thanks, Brett. <laughs>